Jesus, I'm just praising you and thanking you for the just the joyful giving that took place last week at the pie auction. It just was amazing to watch people invest into our students and our future. And we pray for every dollar that's going to be spent on every camp coming up to bring kids there, to bring our leaders there, to see life change, decisions for Christ, return to Christ. You know, like call people to lifelong uh, mission opportunities. You might call them to lifelong vocations where they are going to be uh, the only Christian in their workplace and you're preparing them for that. Would you just do powerful work in our camps, in this toy store, when people who are hurting and they experience just a little boost of kindness would think bigger. I pray for the mission as people come in there broken, hurting, desperate, hopeless, and they realize that you love them. Oh, would you just do continue to do that transforming work in our community? And do transforming work in our church. Lord, we need help. Each one of us can wander from you. We can get into trouble. We can get off track. Would you pull us back? Would you go with us even in this week as we are on your mission, showing, demonstrating, speaking of your good news? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 3 today. We're studying this book of Romans, the power of the gospel, Romans chapter 3. To get us started, we got to think about the coach. Do I even need to say his name? This is the coach. This is Pete Carroll, coach of our Hawks. Probably, if things continue well, should be coach of the year this year because no one thought the Seahawks would be good. No one had any hope. Geno Smith is miraculous. I'm not even sure it's really Geno Smith. It could be an android or something. I don't know, but it's been amazing. And, uh, but really respect his leadership. I have his book on my shelf called Win Forever. When he got fired from, from the New York Jets and the Patriots and it didn't go well, he just reset his whole coaching philosophy, wrote it out, got really clear, and then had great success at USC and now for Seattle. But he has several things, philosophies that it really sticks to, and they play out in different days of the week themes. Okay, might, might, might not be like your themes, like this is sweats day or this is uh, early mocha day, not those kind of themes, but um, like the theme for what he's doing with the team. And one of the themes is tell the truth Monday, tell the truth Monday. Okay. And so this doesn't mean you, you know, tell the person you never like that you hate them. It's not that kind of truth. We played a game Sunday, they get in there Monday and they watch the game tape and they tell the truth. Hey, great, that was a perfect throw, touchdown. Great, that's the truth. Oh, but you, when you put your head down and you missed that block and our quarterback got creamed, yet you can't do that. You have to look up, right? You have to see this guy. Or whatever, whatever great plays, they talk about them. And then whatever is just total misses. Like, you can't fall down here. You can't run the wrong way. You can't, you can't, we can't win the game if you're going to make that play. And it's not shaming, it's not, what's your problem, and call out. It's a, he, I've heard him on lots of interviews. Monday morning is the Pete Carroll show at 9.30. So I always listen carefully to what Coach is saying about the game. And, um, and he says, it's not for shaming. He says, the sooner you get to the truth, the sooner you can fix it. 
So it's an idea. We're not going to put our head in the sand. We're not going to just assume, ah, we probably did fine over there. No, let's get to the truth. Who's playing great? We'll keep going. Who's missing stuff? Okay, let's work on it so that we get better. So the sooner you get to the truth, the sooner that you can make changes, the sooner that we can fix the problem. And that's what we're going to see today. We have a tell the truth Monday kind of a passage, except it's a Sunday, but that's going to be okay for us. Tell the truth Monday. Tell, he, this passage in Romans 3 says we're just going to get to the truth of the matter. We're going to get right to the heart of our reality as humans and where we are with God, with rebellion, what are we facing? This is no, no uh, punches pulled here. It's all on the table. Tell the truth. So that's what we're going to look at in chapter 3. And so let me just review a little bit where we've been. Chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 320 is kind of this one giant section that we've been looking at. And it started really positive. It started really exciting for, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. He says, I'm excited to tell you about the gospel. This is our hope for salvation for every human. He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we start off this excitement. Yes, the gospel and salvation and God's righteousness for those in faith. And then he immediately goes to God's wrath. Like, wait, we started so good. Verse 118, for the wrath of God is revealed. So this is before I can explain the gospel, before you know why you need the gospel, you need to understand the reality. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So from 118 all the way through to 320, we're seeing in clear, no uncertain terms, who and why the wrath of God comes. So, but we saw that the wrath of God comes on Gentile rebels. We saw that in chapter one, the second half of chapter one, people who say, God, no, I know you're there, but I don't care. I'm going to do it my own way. Leave me alone. And God says, okay. But then we saw in chapter two, those judging the rebels, he says, hey, watch out. You have no excuse if you're judging them because you know what, you're doing the same thing. So he gets them looped in. And then we saw in uh, chapter 2 that anyone also is looped in under the wrath of God who is a religious hypocrite. He said, you might have the Jewish law, you might have Jewish circumcision, but you don't obey any of it. Having the law and teaching the law does not mean you're obeying the law. And so he's covered all these groups, all these people that we all fit into. And it's just a tell-the-truth reality. We're all under the wrath of God. And here's the point today. The truth is we all reject God. Not forever. <laughs> if you're saved, you're like, well, I don't anymore. But we used to. That This is where we start. We don't start good and go bad. We start on the we reject God list. This is the tell the truth Monday. We all reject God. So let's read it in just clear, no uncertain terms. Chapter 3, verse 9 through verse 20. This brings this section to a close here of, of him describing who is under the wrath of God. 3, 9 through 20. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Kind of sounds like a tell-the-truth situation, doesn't it? It's boom, 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 boom. He's hammering it. All right? So the truth is that we all reject God. We all reject God. So let's walk back through this passage and, and get this understanding here. The first thing right out of the gate feels like a contradiction. What then? Are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Well, this feels like a contradiction because last week we were here and, and he started chapter 3 saying the same sentence. Look, back, look up there in verse 1, 3, 1. He says the same thing. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So we looked at that last week. He asked the same question. What's the value of being a Jew? What, what was the point of us being, having circumcision as a sign that we're in the covenant? And Paul says, well, there was all kinds of point. You, first of all, you were given the words of God. You had the scriptures of God. That's a huge advantage. You knew what God was doing, what he was thinking. You knew his law. You knew about him. But then we get here to verse nine, verse 9, and he says, no, actually, you're not, you're not better off. Like, Wait a minute. Are we a better off or are we not? And the answer is, that, well, you're, it, it's in different ways. There was an advantage to having the God's words, the oracles of God. There's an advantage. You know him. You know what he's about. You know what he's doing. You know his history. You know his promises. That gives you an advantage to know. So like, you know what's on the test. You know who God is. But then in another way, it does not give you an advantage. And the advantage is it doesn't mean you get to escape the wrath and judgment of God. Here's the way I was thinking about it. I don't know how many years ago now, maybe 20 years or so ago, Disneyland created this thing called the Fast pass. Because if you've ever been to a Disney park, what's one of the things that's not very fun? You wait in line. If there's a new attraction, you know, 90 minutes. See, you're in line for an hour and you come to this part and the sign that says, you're still 45 minutes away. Like, oh, you, you could do three rides in a whole day. You're like, what is going on? Especially if there was something new. And so they came up with this idea to trick you, I mean, to help you. Um, with the fast pass. So, so when you're there, and it's been a while since I've been there, you could go to this thing. It's probably all on an app now. But then you'd push the button, and it would actually print you out a ticket called a fast pass. And it would tell you you could come back to that ride at a certain time, and there was a separate line, and you got to go, and you might wait five minutes. So it would say, come back at 1043, and you could ride Indiana Jones, and you just, boom. And so there's the long, normal line, and then you're in the fast pass line. 
But you can only have one at a time. You can't get like 14 fast passes and go, ha ha, suckers. Disney's pretty smart. But, um, but it was this idea that if you had the fast pass, you got to skip the long line and get in the short line and go in there. And I think that's the question Paul's answering is, hey, is there a fast pass through the wrath of God? Like all these other people, they're going to face the judgment of God. But hey, we've got the fast pass. Our Jewish identity, we have the law, we were circumcised, we're your people of God. Don't we get to kind of skip the judgment line? Paul says, uh, actually, no. On the one hand, you have an advantage. You have God's word. But on the other hand, when it comes to standing before God and facing the wrath of God, there's no fast pass out of that. Everyone's got to do it. Everyone that you can't get out of that. So there's not a skip the line fast pass by virtue of being a Jew. Okay, there's not that. So that's what he's getting at. So then he says, let me just make this crystal clear. This is why there's no fast pass. Because regardless of your ethnicity or your religious background, he's going to go on this list to make it crystal clear that we all reject God. And so what he does here in verses, um, the second half of verse 10, all the way through verse 18, he's strung together Old Testament quote after Old Testament quote. Most of them are in the Psalms, not all of them, to just say, look, let's look in this law. Here, this verse, this verse, this verse, this verse, this verse, all says the same thing. We're rebels, we reject God, we're sinful, and he just flows through them, right? So you see that. Are we any better off? No. We don't have a fast pass. We can't skip that. Why? He says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You see, everybody's under sin. Your, Your ethnicity, your Jewish background doesn't get you off the hook. And then he goes on, as it is written, and here he starts quoting, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And so this same thing here, he's saying all have turned aside. We saw that and this was the analogy I used when we were looking in, in Romans 1. Then when he was talking about the Gentiles, he said they, they know God's there, but they don't want to follow him. They do not honor him as God, and they're not thankful. And I used the analogy then that it's like your life is a car ride, and God's driving, and you're the passenger, and he's taking you down the path of your life. And somewhere along the line, you just say, hey, I don't want you to drive anymore. In fact, I don't really want you in the car anymore. I want to go where I want to go, when and how I want the keys. And so we saw that for the Gentiles, but Paul's saying, yeah, it's the same thing. No one's seeking God. No one really wants to do what he wants to do. No one, everybody wants to drive the key, their own car. Everybody. Jews, Gentiles, no one's looking for God. No one's interested in his pathway. We're all interested in our own. So he goes on here to describe the rebellion using mouths and feet for what we say and feet for what we do. So notice how he's going to go on to say, this is what everybody's about. Oops, I missed it. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, a poisonous snake. Their mouth is full of curse, curses and bitterness. Saying the, he says, first evidence is, look how people talk. Look what you say. It's like death. It's poison. 
How many times have words been destructive in your life? Either words you've received, words of judgment, condemnation, shame, words you've given, right, where you've done those things. Saying words are powerful. Words can be painful. Words can be cursing. James picks up on this about the power of our speech. He says this in James 3, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. You think that? You hear that? If you can control your mouth, you can be perfect. Able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Woof. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The, that's, he's like, evidence number one of our rebellion and sin under God, just follow your mouth. The things we can say, the hurt we can cause, the lies that can be there, the destruction, is that's, that's evidence number one. Then he switches to feet, which is code for your path in life. The things you're doing, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. So the the feet, the direction you're going, your way in life, and the way of peace they have not known. This is your feet, you cause problems, there's harm, there's destruction, there's misery, and there's no peace there. There's no wholeness, there's no soundness, there's no goodness. This particular one is quoted from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. I want to show you the original. It says, their feet run to evil, they are swift to shed blood, shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. So notice that wherever they're going, they're causing a pathway of destruction. This is the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. I thought that was interesting that not only can you cause destruction in your life, anyone who's walking with you or behind you uh, is in trouble, is going to find the same destruction. And I don't know if this illustration dates me, but it's, it's the Jerry Springer show. I don't know if that's still even a thing, but they'd have these on there and just be, it'd be madness. It'd just be an absolute madness of someone's life in total destruction and anyone connected to them. It was just a mess. There's no peace. There was no healthiness. There was no wholeness. It was just trouble. It was just trouble. And he gets to the root of it in verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God 
before their eyes. Well, what does that have to do with it? This one in the original is quoted from Psalm 36. It says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. So the idea of having no fear of God is the idea, I'm not going to answer to anyone for this. I'm going to completely get away with this. No one's going to see. No one's going to know it's me. I'm going to get away with this. And when you think you're going to get away with this, then you go for it. What happens, kids, when there's a substitute teacher? Yeah. Some of you are substitute teachers. You're going, hmm. Right? Oh, we can get away with this. Our real teacher's not here. We don't have to follow the rules. We can tell them, oh, we don't. Oh, we always get lunch a half hour early. Right? They don't realize, you know, when you're young, you don't realize it. The sub will leave a note for your regular teacher. Yeah. Oh, they were terrible. And then, then the, right, when you know you're going to be found out, well, we better not do that. But if you think you can get away with it, I think that's at the root. People don't really fear God. You don't think you're going to answer to him. You don't think you'll be called to account. You might not even think he's there. Why would I worry about someone who I don't think is existing? And when you don't think he's there and you don't think you're going to have to answer for him, then you can do whatever. Right? That's making that pretty clear, isn't it? Everyone. Everyone is doing this. No one is righteous. Everyone's mouth, feet, pathway, no fear of God. And that's when he's saying, this is everyone. The truth is we all reject God. Now, I have some examples of feet and mouth, and they're very extreme examples in the different ways. So, but just you're going, well, I don't know. I'm not that terrible. I'm not that person. Let's just think about the two extremes of these examples. The first one is the feet. This is not a political statement, so don't hear it that way, please. We had an example of this in Seattle. Summer of 2020, and rioters took over a a precinct in a section of Seattle and called it the CHOP zone, the autonomous zone. And their goal was, we're not going to have police enforcement here, and we're going to work on the problems of racism. We're going to work on having a community that works together. So they had that as a goal. This is going to be a community that we're going to solve these problems. And in less than a month, there was two murders there was massive drug use. There was massive, uh, there, there was uh, sexual assault. It was a disaster, an absolute disaster. Their goal was, we're going to come together and we as people are going to solve this problem. And within, I think it was 23 days, they had to clear it because that's what it, it just spiraled right back into feet are swift to shed blood, right? We don't know the way of peace, ruin and misery. It didn't work. That's the, but here's another example. This is a picture of a much happier place. This is a picture of a summer camp I went to called Lake Retreat. It's a camp our, our conference of churches owns, kind of near Issaquah, southeast of Issaquah. And it's a happy place, and it's a Christian place, and God's doing things there. And I remember being there, and this is the mouth example And there's this kid in our group that was just singing all the time, singing, singing whatever songs. And I remember sitting, I can kind of visualize sitting in this area above the lake and talking to some friends and kids from my cabin saying, man, that that kid's singing all the time. He's a terrible singer. And they were like, you know, he's sitting right there. And he got up and walked away very sad. So here I'm at a Christian camp 
learning about Christ and your mouth is, can be poisonous, right? So we can, we can have the one extreme in an anarchist zone. We have murder and bloodshed. And you can have the same at a, the other extreme, a camp made for <laughs> helping people grow in Christ and can still have the mouth full of curses and bitterness. So you can say, this fits us all, right? No one's off the hook here. No one's off the hook. And so what's the result of all this is that we're all held accountable by God. That was Paul's point. He's saying everyone's got to face this. Look in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. That under the law, you could also translate that in or within the law. He's saying the law, which earlier, chapter 2, they were saying, we have the law, we know the law. And he's saying, yeah, and the law is speaking to people who are in it. He's saying the Jewish people are in the law, and you're not keeping the law so that you're, the law is actually going to hold you accountable. But here he says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Like, well, wait, what about the Gentiles who aren't in there? We've seen that, right? We've covered that. We saw the Gentiles in chapter 1 were the people who have ability to know God is there through creation and still rejected him. So the law covers both. Every human has ability to understand at least that God is there and to be thankful. He says those in the law have even more to know. And so basically no one can say, I didn't know. I thought I could do this other thing. He's like, no, actually not. He says the whole world will be accountable. You either know who God is by creation in a general way, or you know who he is specifically in the, to the Jewish people. And he says, and everyone's going to answer to him. Everyone's going to give an account. I'm going to jump ahead here. So those are the various groups, but ultimately everyone's going to have to answer. It says, for all who have sinned without the law, this is Romans 2.12, will also perish without the law, and those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth will be stopped. Everyone's going to have to answer to God. And the whole world be accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He's saying you can't keep God's law perfectly, you will fail. Right? You can't, we can't keep the Ten Commandments. We can't do it. He says the law actually shows you this. He says, here's the law, can you keep it? Okay, I'm going to try. I cannot. I cannot do it. The law shows you. It makes it clear. It reveals. Right? He said, don't steal. Have you ever stolen? Oh, honor your father and mother. Ooh. The law shows you. This is God's standard, and we come up against it. And so no one can say, I followed the law perfectly. Say, no, you didn't, actually. It says, the truth is we all reject God. We're all in the same place together. Every human, everyone's going to face him. Everyone's going to have to do it. So there's two things. Verse 11, no one is looking for God. And verse 18, people aren't really afraid of God. That was, his, that was his thing. Those two things. That kind of bracketed it. So we have to face, face the truth. Face the reality. Sometimes you need to just be hit in the face with your reality. I had that even just in a 
by way of illustration. Like this week, I was like, you know what? A large portion of my shirts don't button anymore. I am getting too fat. I'm, and I'm not joking. I was very sad. I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I eating this? Why can't my clothes fit? Why am I? And I just had to go, you know what? You got to make a change. You got to face some reality. You got to make some calls. You got to do some different stuff. Sometimes you just have to face the reality. Look at the scale. I don't want to go buy a whole new wardrobe. I'm too cheap for that. So I got to face the reality. And when you do that, you can start making a change. It's the same thing that they're doing down at base camp. I've been volunteering down at base camp for about a month. I want to get a sense of what's going on. Base camp is where anyone on the street can come in and they drop in and you can be there and you can eat there and you can spend the night there. And there's really no rules other than you can't sell drugs there and you can't fight people. Otherwise, you can just be there and they'll feed you. And so there's a man there named Don. And Don is kind of the link to, I want to make a change. So I was talking to Don. He said, I want you to listen for when someone says, I can't do it anymore. I can't take this anymore. He says, when you hear those words, let them talk to me. And he says, this is, the, this is what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Here's a discipleship recovery plan. But it's when people get to that place. I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I can't face this anymore. Then they're ready to make a change. It's when you face the truth. It's when you face it. And that's what he's saying. I can't do this anymore. And I think that's what this passage is doing for us. That's what this passage is trying to show us. I can't live without God anymore. I can't get myself straightened out. I can't make my mouth behave. I can't make my actions change. I can't do it. I keep running into the same wall. I want to follow God. I want to serve God. I want to do what's right. And I can't. I'm going to try real hard. I can't do it. I can't control my mouth. I keep, follow, I keep doing the same thing and it causes ruin and destruction. And that's the whole point. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Oh, yeah, you're right. You can't. You cannot do it. And that's right where he wants to take you. That's right where the gospel takes you. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. But first you need to know you're under the wrath of God because we're rebels. So we just, we'll have to look into the next section. We'll study it more next week. But we've got to jump ahead He's saying, this is where he's been taking us for a couple chapters. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law showed you you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do anything. But now, now, it's apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've just seen that in the most vivid and painful of circumstances. But, he says, we fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means a satisfaction of wrath. It says, God put Jesus forward as that. By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. We're going to look at that in more detail next week. But that's the good news. That's where this whole thing is building. The law shows you you can't do it. Your life shows you you can't do it. And he says, but you know what? I still love you. And I've come up with a plan apart from the law. 
apart from it. The truth is, we all reject God, but he hasn't rejected us. He hasn't washed his hands of us. He hasn't said, I can't do it anymore. He said, I'm going to come and save you. I will take the wrath. I will step into that place. I will be condemned so that we can be righteous through Christ. He has not rejected us. So I'm just wondering if we think through, is it time for a change? Is this hitting you in the face? Is this getting to that place where I just can't do this anymore? I just can't do this anymore. If you're living a life on your own, I'm driving the car, I'm going where I want, and you're like, I'm tired of crashing the car. I'm tired of causing the problem. The change is to turn to Jesus. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, and you just need to come back. Like, yeah, I know I put Jesus in the seat, and then I kind of start right seat driving him and back seat driving him. And then before I know, I'm trying to grab the wheel. and I just need to let him take back control. You need to return to Jesus. But you can't get there till this hits you in the face. I'm just going to keep making a mess. I need him. I need him. And he, that's what he says, he's come for that. He's come to save us. He's come to lead us. So it looks like getting real honest, tell the truth to yourself and God. Hey, I've been doing it on my own. I cannot do this anymore. Take back the wheel. Take back control. I trust you. Let's just have a moment of prayer and reflect on that, and then we're going to worship Lord Jesus. I'm not sure how you're working in people's hearts right now. I just pray for a moment of them to tell the truth, to receive the truth, to acknowledge the truth of where they are. If you're a person that's always rejected God and always kept Him at bay... And you want to just say, God, I'm tired of this, Lord. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of the mess I've made. I'm tired of the trouble my mouth and my feet get me into. Just confess that to God. Say, I want to give you control. I'm trusting in you. And maybe you've known this answer. You've known that Jesus is, and you've kind of gone back off the rails. You say, I want to come back. I'm not near you. I am not letting you lead my life. I'm trying to take back control. Just tell that truth to God. Lord, we thank you that you've not given up on us, that apart from the law, you've come to satisfy wrath, to forgive us of our sins, to make us new, to give us hope in you, to cleanse us, to wash us, so that we don't stay in that place of rejecting you. We become part of your family. Thank you, Lord. Help us to walk in that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.